Welcome to Yeah But the Podcast. My name's Vivian Gabor, and I'm sitting down with someone <laughs> who <laughs> is, is already laughing, so this is gonna be great. Uh, <laughs> I just love how you turn right on. Like, you're like, record, and I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Performer through and through. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I may not be caffeinated, but I know how to turn the party. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm sitting down with someone who hasn't been on the podcast for, I think it's three years. I was literally oh just Oh my like, God. No, no, no. No, no, no. Two years. No, I'm it's pretty two sure years. you're right. Okay. April, it was April of 2018 was when we recorded last. Um, uh, amazing director and performer and educator and all around amazing person. It's Andrew Koopman. Hi, everyone. And not only all of that, but you just got your master's, master's, doctorate, master's. I'm working on it. I'm going into the third year of my MFA in directing. I, I'm just immediately just my brain is like a year ahead of everything because I just want because this all we to all be want over. Because we all want to skip 2020. I'm really worried we're going to get to the end of 2020. It's going to be like five, four, three. three. Two round two. <laughs> no, that's that's when Thanos snaps his fingers, and you're like, no. <laughs> yeah, um, I keep joking with friends about like how many beers does 2020 have because I feel like it's a continual like hold my beer, hold my beer. You want me to outdo that? Hold oh my God. beer. You want me yeah. to outdo that? Fire tornado. My favorite <laughs> meme. <laughs> my favorite meme right now is the whole. Okay, who had this on their 2020 bingo sheet? No one. And we're like 2020. Stop you. Stop. You've done enough. You've done everything. Like the Mayans were eight years off. <laughs> like, yeah, we got it. It's stop. okay. You need to stop compensating. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Andrew and I met years and years and years ago, back when we were miniature college students. Miniature, little little young babies. I'm actually yeah. wearing my my Whitworth shirt today because oh my god, it was the last shirt I had. It's a long sleeve T-shirt, but it's I need to do laundry, and it's the last shirt. <laughs> I love <laughs> like, it. Appropriate. It was on um, purpose. Absolutely, we met. We were actually roommates our senior year. Yep. Um, and did uh, the house. coolest house. Yeah. It what, was was, a, what did we call that I, house? It was the Games and Adventures theme house. Games and Adventures. I wish you and I had had the <laughs> forethought and the confidence to make it games. <laughs> <laughs> Except I don't think our other two roommates would have been up for that. But I don't think they would have gotten it. I think they would have been Wait, like, we oh, had that's two... a happy way to spell games. Wait, do we have two roommates <laughs> yeah, or roommate. one roommate? We had two. So we had Ben <laughs> and Josh. Remember Josh? Yes, I remember Josh. And how he didn't want to socialize with us? Yes. Which is <laughs> probably why I remember him. I don't remember Ben. Rose? Oh, Ben. Ben. God. Okay. 
<laughs> I forgot I lived with Ben. <laughs> ben, if you're listening, you're probably not. You're the smartest person I've ever known, and I'm sorry. I remember you, Ben, and I love you. You and Caitlin, all the good things. They have kids now. They do, and we are just... I mean, at and least Josh you're has married. fallen off the face of the planet because who cares? <laughs> Josh, if you're listening to this, you're not. We all know. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> um, but yeah, we lived in a, a gigantic house. It truly, it was, it was like, I don't know. It must have been a good like thousand, fifteen hundred yeah. square feet. To me, it's like gigantic. That would be the but... last time we would ever live in a house that big. <laughs> We're like college students running the world, living and... <laughs> in a big house. I just graduated. The world is my oyster. Moved to New York, 100 foot square foot yeah. square, four bedroom apartment. <laughs> I mean, I'm living in a fairly large apartment right now, but my li- my bedroom is literally half of the living room. So I don't know if we can count that. Uh, yeah. New York. New York. <laughs> New York. Um, but now we're here. You're continuing your education as you should. I have put mine on hold because I Because you're too taking lazy. the world, Vivian Gabor. <laughs> I'm too lazy. <laughs> um, it was really what happened was I finished my first master's and I was applying for doctoral programs. And I say first master's just like off the cuff. It wasn't a big deal. It was two years of sitting there talking about music. Music master's degrees are not difficult. (laughs) My first master's was a year and a half long in educational theater, which I'd been teaching for seven (laughs) years already when I had taken it. I remember going into that program. It was a great program. NYU was awesome. Um, And I loved that program, except I didn't realize that I would be going into a class where basically I was working with a bunch of people who were interested in beginning a career in educational theater. And (laughs) And here I was already pretty well established as a teaching artist. So they were like, how should you talk to kids? A, with respect, (laughs) or B, like you're talking down to them. And I'm like, A. Always talk down to them, duh. (laughs) Uh, I, I I think that's I think that's right. They're like, does anyone have any theater games? I know it's scary to lead. I'm like, oh, bitch, got this. <laughs> scary to lead when it's kids. All you have to do is say, okay, sit in a circle and tell yourselves weird okay. stories for an hour. I mean, and I've been teaching go. since I was like 14. So, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, this is weird. And it was a bunch of, there was some like teaching artists who were in the program, but it was mostly BAs who had just graduated from either mm an NYU undergrad program or like a school in Jersey. Yeah. And um, and so they're all here wanting to do theater and it was cool, but it was very, the degree gave me exactly what I needed, which was a piece of paper that opened doors. Yep. That's all, that's, that's what degrees are for. Exactly. I often say you don't have to have a degree. Degrees are mostly just either for someone else to understand what you know or for networking. Yeah, it's true. Um, but the reason I stopped going to school for a while was because I finished that first master's. I was applying for doctoral programs almost, it was this close, this close I to getting into one. And they came back to me. They were like, okay, we're just going to deliberate for a day or so. They In got back to Edinburgh? me. It was, 
uh, Glasgow. I thought Glasgow. it was Edinburgh, but now I've learned it was Glasgow, <laughs> okay. which not as good, but I love Glasgow. I mean, you I've clearly actually... did your research. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> and I, I actually have one of my friends from Glasgow on a future episode, like a couple episodes from now. So I do love Glasgow. It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. Um, but, and then like a week and a half later, I still hadn't heard from them. And I sent them an email. It was like, uh, so, uh, hey girl, hey, am I in? And they were like, so we decided that we want you to get a second master's degree and then come back and talk to us. And I was like, you want me to spend how much more money before I can get my doctorate? Yeah. My question, my first question would be like, are you paying for it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so that's why I stopped school for a while. And I'm just living my life. But anyway, um, that bunny trail aside, um, Andrew's in my life has kind of been, we've been kind of parallel for a while, even in the times where we're like, we're really busy and haven't talked for like a year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like, so we went to school together. We ended up living together. Then after graduation, we both moved to Seattle. We actually worked at some of the same places. Yeah. Um, I was on the road with Missoula Children's Theater for a while. Oh, Missoula Children's Theater. Where yeah. My cousin helped found. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and then we moved to Seattle. We lived together for a hot second. And then we Which didn't. Which we won't talk about. <laughs> I mean, like, the thing is, is that you and I have had, like, a super journey as, a friend, as friends, right? It's been yeah. basically 10 years, which is honestly Holy the longest... Dude. longest friendship i've ever had because it, i've wait, moved it has been times. 10 years it yeah. has been 10 years it's been 10 years oh my god i just i feel so I old <laughs> well but and for me like i've never had a friend that long because me either I, I i've moved 30 times in my life and i'm 30 years old <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah and so i I mean, you and I have had parallel journeys. You and I have had periods where we were best friends. We've had periods where we hated each other. Uh, <laughs> we've had periods of time where we, like, we're both, like, trying to, like, flex our straight muscles and failing completely. <laughs> and Oh, my God, like, yes. We competed over roles. We competed over jobs. And then we supported one another. I went to your first drag show. Yes, um, you did. And it's, like... I mean, our friendship's had a journey and it's been great because, you know, it's true. We, anytime I feel like you or I can text each other and just, we're like, hey girl, hey. And mm -hmm. we, it's like, no time has passed. Yeah. Oh, you've been through all this shit and we haven't talked. It's like, nothing's <laughs> happened. Oh, you're getting married? Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> you're living in London now? What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, ouch. Um... <laughs> Too real, too soon. My bad. <laughs> Not too soon, just very real. Uh, but now we are. You are um, in Seattle. You mm -hmm. just got married over Zoom. It was. I did the first wedding I've been to in years and years and years, um, and it was so much fun. Just like it was. So you got married the same day as the Queer Liberation March anniversary. Yep. And I was at the Queer Liberation March left five minutes before the police started beating people. I of course. <laughs> timed it so well, apparently. Didn't try police. to, but I did. Uh, truly. Uh, and then ran in, was sweaty, wearing a tank top, looking disgusting. 
And then every other person that was there was like dressed up, their hair was done, everyone had like glasses. It was truly everything that was great about a wedding, except I didn't have to entertain anyone. Yeah. Like I didn't have to feed anyone. I didn't have to make sure there was an open bar. I didn't have to monitor my family. I didn't have to monitor <laughs> my friends talking to my family. I didn't have to. I didn't have to host. Well, the best just... part was we were all muted the entire time, except for the very end where we like all cheers to you. So you didn't even have to hear us. <laughs> I mean, you said it, not me. I fully, though there were a few other people that I knew there, and we were fully just like texting each other back oh, and sure. forth of like. That guy is really cute. Wait, scroll two pages over. Third person down, two to the right. What are they wearing? <laughs> I want to know. I want to know who you're talking about. But I, don't, we'll talk I about honestly don't even remember. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> but we, and the thing is, I was so thankful that my family was there to celebrate. Um, you know, my family and I have had our differences. We've had some really tough parts of our journey um, as a family. But the fact that they, after everything they put me through growing up, which Mm -hmm. it was I mean like just getting let's get to real talk you know like real talk we we they sent me to a version of conversion therapy um and they they say they didn't know um but Mm -hmm. I know that that they were not comfortable with my homosexuality at the time that I was doing behaviors that were not uh healthy uh and um so they sent me to a therapist to try to cure the gay. Um, I know that they were not comfortable with it. They're using um, derogatory terms towards the LGBTQ community within our home. It was an unsafe place to the point where I didn't feel safe coming out until I was 22. Like, like it was close to when I came out too. Yeah, it was right I after was 20, college. I was 23, I think. It was. I'd, I was I'd been on the graduating. road, maybe 23. I, it might have been 23 for me too, because. I graduated from Whitworth, and then I went on the road for Missoula, traveled around the country pretending to be a straight guy, which was <laughs> a choice I made. Come on, um, conservative Christian schools, woo! Yeah. Right? Where you're afraid to just live and mm-hmm. love. Um, and then halfway through my tour, um, I will forever be thankful uh, to Emma Merlo, um, who is hands down the best tour partner I've ever had. Um, and how she and even like Nathan Koval, uh, they both really encouraged me to dive deeper into who I am. Uh, and I ended up coming out to my cousin in New York City. She's the best, Beth Ann Breslau, I love you. Um, <laughs> but she she helped me. It was walking down a street in the East Village and these two guys were walking in front of me and my cousin and they were just holding hands. And I watched them and I started crying. Um, and my cousin looked at me and she's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, it's just so, it's so beautiful to just see two humans loving one another with very little fear of anything happening to them. They were, they were in a, I mean, like East Village is East Village, but yeah. it's not perfect. Uh, but they were safe enough to be able to walk hand in hand, go and enjoy an evening together, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was tearing up and crying and my cousin just stopped me on the corner. Uh, we were on our way to an Italian restaurant. And she stopped me and she just looked at me and she's like, Andrew, are you gay? <laughs> and I was like, yes. <laughs> um, started crying. We went to Italian food. I cried into my spaghetti. It was a good time. Um, and 
you know, that's when that all began. So that journey, this journey I've had with my family about my queerness and, you know, I mean, I'm still working on my pronouns with them. You know, I really prefer he, him, they, them pronouns. I prefer both. I, I'm working on that journey. I finally got my family to admit some things. They are still going to vote for Trump this fall, um, which is mm. befuddling to me, but yep. they, they came and supported me at my wedding. And for that, I'm thankful. They showed up and have been very supportive. They love my husband. Um, they truly, truly do. I think they would choose him over me in the divorce. Um, <laughs> and uh, I mean, it, it took us long enough to find, or took you long enough to find him and me, so many boyfriends being like, nope, I hate him. <laughs> nope. Yeah. I, hate I mean, him. my, my nope, previous sucks. partner. Yeah. We, it's funny. It took, <laughs> it took two and a half, two years for my parents to meet my partner before Jamie. Um, it took two years of begging and asking, will you please come meet them? And was that the was that the one that came to the one drag show where we like barely talked and then afterwards they texted you and it was like, nope, not it. <laughs> He's weird. And you were right. Um, you were a hundred percent cause right, because he was a controlling, manipulative bitch. <laughs> but I never I still struggle with the tact with how of that how even to, happened. No, the tact of like how to tell someone, hey, my intuition is telling me this is bad <laughs> yeah well i mean you were spot on and but it took two years and my parents met him and they were like we don't like him either um <laughs> they didn't tell him that he still thinks they like him but that's not Oop. true so if you're listening to this podcast Oop. Well, <laughs> now you know <laughs> sorry not sorry um <laughs> uh but and i'm and i'm thankful for that time but then you know two, that was a two and a half year long relationship we broke up six months into dating not even three months it was at the into the woods premiere that i directed um three months in they were like we want to come meet and see into the woods and i was like okay if you come you're going to meet my partner and they were like well i'm not sure if we're ready for that i'm like you don't get to choose <laughs> you don't get to compartmentalize my life to make yep. you comfortable yeah um and they ended up coming to Into the Woods and they met him and they loved him. They're like, oh my God, we love him. He's amazing. Don't let him mm -hmm. go. We love it. Can we adopt him? Can we get rid of him? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, my, I, my dad truly, truly loved Jamie. Like, hmm. I, which if you had told me, you know, 10 years ago that these feelings that you're struggling with inside that make you feel dirty and unlovable and abominable and hateable, um, that you hate yourself and you can't live authentically and that someday you would get to the point where you're not only confident in yourself, but you have a partner that you're proud of and your parents would love them. And hopefully we'll someday not vote for Trump or be homophobic. Um, <laughs> but that, that we would even get to this point where mm -hmm. they can acknowledge my relationship as, and I don't need their acknowledgement, right? I don't need their approval. No, I don't need their permission. But at but the, the same fact time, that they give it. It's a cherry on top. Is amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. And so for that, I'm thankful. We are still working on the reality of the past. You know, yeah. I think there are things that they want to pretend didn't happen. Yeah, um, that they won't acknowledge. And yeah, that's, their, I've that's definitely, their journey. I've been I have had to struggle a lot with that, too. There was a period of time where I didn't speak to my parents whatsoever at all. Um, for I think it was two, two and a half years. I remember um, that. And it was because I, I was... I your house at that point. That was weird. 
Yeah. I think I still, I think I still have the key to your house. Don't worry. It doesn't, it doesn't work. My parents changed all the locks. <laughs> but it wasn't because of me. I literally flat out asked them, did you change the locks because of me? And they were like, no. Literally, the lock just stopped working because it was so old. And I was like, okay, good. And my sister corroborated that. I would have been like, cool, we're never talking again. You'd be like, Um, cool, (laughs) I'm a savage. (laughs) Um, But, but, and a lot of that was because I was dealing with the, the issues of my own anger about things they had said in the past, things they had done in the past. Because they've come around, they know, they're supportive, they've met past boyfriends, etc. Um... But I had to get to a point personally, and I, I know not everyone's like this, but I had to get a po- to a point where I was like, where I realized that nothing they did to me was intentional um, because they were treating me the way that they were treated growing up. Yes. And they were only doing what they knew. And so I had to get to a point where I just had to forgive and let go mm-hmm. and say, I'm not going to get closure for that part of my life but at the same time i don't necessarily need closure for that part of my life because it's it's gone it's it's happened i can move forward i i know it happens so i can use that to inform what i do in the Mm -hmm. future if i have children in the future i know what not to do now right Um, it's not a and it's not a closure thing it's just it's that thing of like i don't need i don't need closure i don't need your permission or Mm -hmm. like forgiveness like the past is the past. However, you're not going to erase what happened. No, completely. And I think that's the tough part is, A, finding the time to talk about that because those things, you, it's not something that you could like, for me, it was always like, well, am I going to bring it up at Christmas? Because that's the only time I'm going to see my family. Do I want to ruin the two days? Or do I no, want to just gloss a, it over? A- it's that Maya Angelou quote that I love. It's the uh, uh, do the best you can until you know better, and then when you know better, do better. Yeah. And exactly. I think a lot of a lot of people who are conservatives who didn't understand the LGBTQ uh, community, or even like today the Black Lives Matter movement, mm-hmm. it takes understanding it and getting connected with it, and taking the time to ask questions and actually get to know people one on one. That. Yeah. I think that's where that journey begins because, you know, I had a conversation with my mom um, on the phone where, and, you know, I, I, I'm not ashamed to share this story because, you know, I think it's truthful and it was a huge hurdle we had to get through and we got through it eventually, but it was a very painful conversation when it happened because, you know, we were talking about how like there's pain from the past that was still undealt with. And I said, I'm not comfortable talking with you about that yet because I don't know if you're in a place to like hear me and actually apologize, you know? Mm-hmm. And she said, well, tell me because I want to. And I'm like, I've told you before, which I did. I told her when I was 24 and her response was, well, that didn't happen. And so at that point yeah. I was like, okay, conversation's over. Yeah. And, but this conversation, I was like, I told you when I was 24 and you told me it didn't happen. And she's like, well, I don't remember that. And I'm like, I, I know. And yeah. Just because but, you don't remember something doesn't mean it didn't happen. Because yeah, she, a lot of times it's things that we say offhand that we don't even mean or don't like. And then think we block about. it out. And then and, we block it well, out. Well, and it's it's not that we even block it out. It's that we don't remember it because to us it wasn't important. Right. So so she was like, "Tell me, tell me again." This was like four weeks ago. Uh, it was it was. I think after the wedding, um, 
but she was like, tell me, I really want to apologize for it. I really want to apologize for it because if I didn't before, then I'm, I just really want to apologize for what I said. I said, okay, okay, here you go. And I told her the story again. I told her, I'm like, I can take you to the corner where you pulled the car over in Wheaton, Illinois and said homophobic, bigoted things to me as your son. You called me disgusting. You called me abominable. And I'm like 14 or 15 at the time. Mm-hmm. I was in therapy. Um, but she said, you're disgusting. You're abominable. You're, I, it's gross. Like all these things. And then we drove to like McDonald's or something. I don't even remember. But um, decimated me, you know, mm-hmm. 14 or 15 years old. And here I am as a 30 year old man on the phone with my mom. She's like, please, please tell me. So I tell her again, because she said, tell me so I can apologize. Told her the story. And the first thing she said was, well, I totally understand how a teenage brain could understand what I was saying. I mean, I was talking about you looking at pornography because I'm a normal human. And I looked at pornography. I'm sorry. It's Um, been a thing for a millennia. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm sorry. I looked at it. I own that. That's what I did make the choice to look at pornography. But she was like, I understand how a teenager could misinterpret that. And uh, I was talking about pornography and there was no way I would have ever called my son that blah, 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 blah. And I just let her talk for a few minutes and I was just like, you know, you asked me, you forced me to tell you so that you could apologize. And then the first thing you said was an excuse Mm -hmm. and you still haven't apologized. Mm -hmm. And she was like, oh my God, Andrew, you're so right. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, that apology is three to four minutes too late now. Yep. And you know, she was like, I'm so sorry. You're right. You're so right. I should have just apologized because whether or not I intended it, that's how it was received and da, 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 all this yeah. stuff. And I was like, you're right. Thank you for that apology. But this is what I'm talking about. We can't have these conversations yet. Mm-hmm. We're not ready, you know? And I think something that I've had to keep in mind, even though it sounds trite, it sounds cliche, um, but you you have to remember that the years that we struggled with ourselves and the years that we took to come to terms with who we are unlearning everything we've been told and learning exactly. all the traits that society had forced upon us it takes the people around us the same amount of time sometimes it's you if not can't, longer um, yeah and you can't um, you can't expect someone to immediately be like oh my god i understand i get it like at this point it's like hopefully the my parents will figure out some of these things by the time they die but who knows they might not and like yeah it's you just have to you have to understand that the human and not you specifically just speaking in general no i totally know have to understand that people have to take time to process things and have to take time to time to learn and grow like mm-hmm. our country taking this to the, a bigger level our country is in a lot of turmoil right now because people are being con- confronted with things that they honestly and i it sounds like an excuse, but Dolly Parton even talked about it in a very recent interview. Mm-hmm. There, there is such a thing as ignorance. It's not a mm-hmm. bad thing, and it's not something that makes someone evil. Yeah, it's someone pe- does not know something. They're ignorant. Yeah, I of wish it. we could take ignorance out of the category of insult. Me too, because it's just an acknowledgement of like I didn't know, and it's a slippery slope, right? Yep. For people in privilege, uh, for pe- white people. Because if um, you admit you're ignorant in one thing, all of a sudden you have to admit that you're ignorant in a whole lot of other things and start to learn. And that and you've been complicit change. in a system that benefits your whiteness and 
uh, perpetuates a systemic racist institution in which you have benefited and BIPOC communities have been victims and oppressed. And, you know, and once you've held and tasted that power, it's very difficult to release it. Not even saying that you're going to lose power when you release it. Yeah. Because you won't. The thing with, with, power and responsibility and with strength is that when you release some of that, it just puts more into the world. Right. Right. And, it's, and it's scary to let that go. Right. Because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's uncomfortable to acknowledge as a white person that you are racist inherently because we live mm-hmm. in a society that benefits white heterosexual privileged males. You know, that white privilege is a thing, you know, especially yeah. Christian, like white heterosexual Christian males. That is the, that is the, 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 the mm-hmm. thing, cisgender too, you know, sorry, I keep adding things, but it's that, <laughs> that box. And yep. then it's a comfortable box when you're in that box, because it's a big box and it's a big box mm-hmm. that holds a lot of power, a lot of comfort, a lot of peace and a lot of privilege. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to acknowledge the opening of that box. Cause like, you don't want to share your comfort. You don't want it because it might make you uncomfortable. And I think and you that's don't want to share thing. your insecurities. Insecurities make you quote unquote weak. Which again is a <laughs> heterosexual cisgender society way of like, don't get emotional because if you're emotional, you're irrational. And it's like, I can be emotional and rational. And rational. <laughs> um, In fact, you but, can generally be a lot more rational when you acknowledge an emotion occurring. Yeah. So we, it's hard because it's a slippery slope, because if you acknowledge that, then you have to acknowledge that it's a racist society, which if you acknowledge that it's a racist society, you need to acknowledge that there's a problem in the leadership and that's where mm-hmm. things start to bump, you know? And it's, it's a hard thing, you know, that white fragility is, is a real thing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was raised white, you know, and I am mostly white. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until like three or four years ago that my mom finally was like, yeah, you have like a great grandfather who was Middle Eastern. <laughs> or he, she's, and she used the word more. And I'm like, mom, we don't use that word anymore. Oh, God. What, um, what is this, Elizabethan times? I don't know. I don't know. And so she's, so been, she walk, that, she's been watching and Henry like, VIII too many times. And I'm like, why don't we know more about this human? And then she was mm-hmm. like, well, she was ab- he was abandoned as a kid, so we don't really know. He could be African-American. He, he could be African. He could be Saudi Arabian. And I'm like, Middle Eastern makes the most sense to me. And, um, and because, because for of a what lot you of reasons. Look like. <laughs> yeah, because of what I look like. Even though and you're the only one in your family that looks like that. I'm the only one, you know. Long running joke that you were the you were the the milkman's kid. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. I mean, I would never imply that my parents or that my mother was unfaithful to my father. However, I have questions. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, genetics dad, are weird things, and sometimes they skip it's generations. And yeah. yeah, and. And I mean, like, I, I mean, like, I'm a big spiritual person. I remember when I was with Missoula Children's Theater, I traveled to the Middle East. Um, mm-hmm. I felt more at home in the Middle East than I felt anywhere yeah. in the entire world. It was like I was returning home to, in yeah. a way. And so that was super weird. But like, we don't talk about it. Yeah. And we don't know anything about it. And I've asked questions. I've been like, hey, well, who was this person? They're like, oh, we don't know. He was abandoned. I'm like, and that's where we're leaving it? i think Um, i think that's something that i want to sit on and talk about for a second as well just the idea of like i i haven't gotten to 
to quote unquote take pilgrimages to places where I know my ancestors are from for the most part. Um, like I desperately want to go to Romania because I have a sneaking suspicion that I'm going to have a feeling similar to yours in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, but I will say, I do know that I have English and Scottish ancestry in me mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, for those who are new to the podcast, I'm, I'm adopted. So I'm, I have all sorts of <laughs> things in me. Um, I'm Romanian and English and Scottish in my birth family. And I'm almost pure Scottish and almost pure, um, uh, Ashkenazi Jew in my adopted family. Mm-hmm. Um, like my dad's family is all Scottish. Like I don't think there's been a non-Scottish person in that family since they came to the New World. Your dad was a rebel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then he went and married an Ashkenazi Jew. He went and brave-hearted his way into the family. Yeah, honestly, truly. <laughs> and my mom is. I call I call her first and a half generation because her mom was born here, but the rest of her mom's family was born back in the Ukraine. Mm. So like she's my mom's technically first generation. Uh, and her mom was Ukrainian and her dad was Lithuanian. So they're like as Eastern European Jew as you can get. Um, but my birth family is all uh, Romanian Jew and English Scottish. So I have the Jewish in me all over the place. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Both on paper and in blood. Yeah. Uh, but all that to say, uh, when I went to the UK for the first time, it was even just stepping off the plane, that first breath was just so revelatory. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so strange coming it's to a so place. Weird. It's so weird. Coming to a really place strange. where, like, you know you're from and you know you're far removed from, but you take that first breath and you're like, okay, I can finally relax for the first time in my life. Yes. And then when I got that, And there's that, like, there's there's different ones, right? There's the ones Mm -hmm. where you step off the plane and you're like, oh, in a past life, I was definitely here. Yep. (laughs) Which is different than the one of like, ooh, this is, this is, this is Herod, this is, this is heritage. This is somewhere yeah, yeah. in me. And that's what I felt when I got to Scotland. I I had always wanted to see Scotland just because it looks beautiful and the pictures are great and it's cheap and it's stunning. Um, sheep. <laughs> that was your pinnacle? <laughs> and Hetty Hewland Coos. Um, but, Boar. but getting to... questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the Welsh you have to talk to about that one. Um... <laughs> But I got off the train in Edinburgh and started exploring it. And then you get up to the castle and you, I started feeling this weird, like, it, 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 um, it's like butterflies in the stomach. Like, you can't wait to, like, be where you are. It's, mm-hmm. it's a weird thing. And then getting to the top of the castle and you can literally see the highlands from Edinburgh Castle. Mm-hmm. Like you can see almost to the North Sea. It's crazy how far it's you can beautiful. see. It's beautiful. I loved Edinburgh. And I've been there. I was speechless. And I mm-hmm. just, I had my hands flat on the stones in front of me. And I just, it felt like my feet were growing into the ground. It was this weird grounding, like, I don't even know how to describe it. But it was this experience <laughs> where I knew this is, this is home. I get it. Um, and 
I always worried that I would get to Scotland and just always be kind of giggling at people's accents and like not be able to like take it seriously because I mean, you grow up in a Scottish family and you're always making fun of like haggis and oh, look, a bagpipe. <laughs> and, and sheep, apparently. And this is, this is our family tartan. But you get there and it's just like, or I got there and it was just the most fulfilling moment that I've ever had. And so when I went um, and performed, because I had my first show in Scotland in Edinburgh and I just cried my eyes out afterwards and like they handed me the mic and were like you want to say something I was like and you were like I'm a professional please hire me again it's it's that thing of I I fully believe that it ties into the the idea of our family we we have two families. We have the family that we're born into and then the family that we choose. Yes. Um, and it, it very much ties into that whole idea of when you truly find that family, when you truly find that home, there's a feeling of solidarity that happens. Yes. That's intense. Yes. And everyone in the world should fucking travel. Yeah. <laughs> that's and, what and- this all comes to. And then have questions about it, right? Like, mm-hmm. I'm not walking around being like, yes, I am uh, fully Middle Eastern. You know, I don't walk <laughs> around claiming that because I was not raised that way. I have to acknowledge that what the way I was raised, I was raised in a white household. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and there was lots of different cultures um, that I was exposed to. And then the truth came out, you know, when I was mm-hmm. like three or four years ago. And that there is also like like Spanish was a big part of my history and not um, not Mexican or Latino, uh, but specifically Spain Spanish and mm-hmm. um, the white and, Spaniards. <laughs> yes, and so I, there's like so many questions about this, and so you know I do I'm I am a multicultural human. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm intersectional, and I have multiple communities that I belong to, and I'm I'm asking more questions than I am demanding answers. You yeah. know. Um, which I think is important, right? I, th- it I think is. you can experience that energetic shift when you walk into your uh, a homeland that you never knew was your homeland, mm-hmm. but that doesn't automatically make you of that homeland. Exactly. Yeah, and, I think that's something that's fair to say, especially, and it, it was something that I was really confronted with when I came to New York was... Because, yes, I'm Jewish. My mom's Jewish. But I didn't, I've never been to synagogue. Mm. I didn't get, um, I didn't get a bar mitzvah. I didn't get a lot of that stuff. I didn't go to Hebrew school. I wasn't allowed to. Um, Like, I grew up Protestant Christian. Like, that's just what it was. I grew up Presbyterian because of my dad's being Scottish. Yay, Presbyterians. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Presbyterian college. Um, (laughs) But... Then, and, but also throughout my life, like I have the most Jewish first name, not Vivian. (laughs) Vivian was my chosen name. And there was actually, so, I mean, my real name is Ira and it's the most Jewish name that you could possibly have other than like Mordechai or like Moses. Um, Joshua. (laughs) I mean, Joshua is a fairly like ubiquitous name anymore. Common name, sure. Um, But like, 
so I would go to stores and people would joke about my name and be like, oh, ha, ha, is it a bank account? I'm like, no, like it's a Jewish ancestral name. And they're like, oh, same thing, right? <laughs> and, and like, I so I would, have I, those, I would have those moments of seeing anti-Semitism, but not really like those microaggressions feeling a part of it. Yeah. Because I was white, like I was just white and I was Protestant Christian, Protestant Christian. I didn't understand that. And then I came to New York and was surrounded by Jews and it was just like, Oh, <laughs> I have a culture. I'm allowed to yeah. be part of this culture. I'm allowed to go to a deli and say, yeah, I'll take the latkes and some gefilte fish. You want the gefilte fish? Yeah. Doesn't everyone like gefilte fish? Well, you don't look Jewish. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. But it's, it, but you are also approaching it with a, you, a, a desire to be a part of it, Yeah, you know, which is, which is different than claiming it outright, you yeah. know, um, I, you know, culture is, 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 is learned and raised. Mm -hmm. Um, and you don't automatically gain the ancestral history of your entire culture by just saying, hello, I am here. You know, you have to, <laughs> you have to show up and show out, you know? Yeah. Um, that's cool. <laughs> but so my, so yeah, my family and I have talked about it a little bit, not about that, but just about everything. And, you know, I'm really impressed with how far they've come. They've come around um, in a lot of ways, not always. And someday they'll get there because I'm a firm believer that we are all on a journey of discovering love and progression. You know, mm -hmm. um, I got my, I got my parents to acknowledge Black Lives Matter, which was a huge win. Um, Yay. And then they're like, yeah, but, and I'm like, no, no. <laughs> we'll just leave it there. They're like, yeah, just, but no. Just, <laughs> no. <laughs> That's when you pass them the, the interview with Dolly Parton. This, yeah. Slip that under the door. Just stop there. <laughs> just stop. It's okay. You don't have to say anything more. Don't bring if you don't up know what, about what article I'm talking about, there was a Dolly Parton just did an interview where people were like, do you, do you side with Black Lives Matter? And she was like, duh. Obviously. Like, I th it was because someone brought up to her at Dollywood, there's a show called Dixie Stampede. And people <laughs> were like, can you not call it Dixie Stampede? Because Dixie is like, not the greatest name for things to be proud of right now. And she was like, sure, of course, if it's going to be offensive and going to cause people to be hurt, absolutely. And so now it's just the stampede. Which is all <laughs> just a like, oh, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah. You know, like, it doesn't it have to, to be, be a big deal. Just let it go. And that's where like I've heard, you know, some some leaders, you know, I, I, I've been paying attention to the WeCU, uh, the white American theater demands, mm. which I fully support um to to embrace and amplify BIPOC and multicultural narratives on a higher level of theater mm -hmm. um and it's interesting because there was a big conversation that happened in Seattle around it and um I think my favorite part of it was um you know um someone someone said that she is a black uh, the person who said this was a black uh artist incredible theater artist and you know a lot of a lot of the leadership here in seattle is white a lot of them are 
Mm-hmm. Um, and they were all like, what do we do? Like, we, we want to do this. Like, this is our passion. Like, we love theater. We try to create spaces and we try to create opportunities. Like, do I have to step down? Do I have to quit doing theater and being creative? And um, I was told this by another friend. Um, um, my mentor said this, Valerie Curtis Newton. She's amazing. And she said, they aren't demanding you step away from what you love. They're not asking you to quit doing what you're doing. We don't want your job. We want the resources and opportunities for our own mm-hmm. companies, for our own opportunities. Yeah. Like the theater should be more supported. And it's not it's not to the detriment of we want all white leaders of theater to resign. Yeah. Like some of them are doing really great work. Some of them have some questions they need to ask some tough questions about how they are doing the work, but there, but I, and I won't say the majority, there are a number of them who are very passionately creating spaces for BIPOC artists and LGBTQ artists. Um, And the question is how, and then where are some resources that we can give to BIPOC communities to create their own theaters and their own opportunities mm-hmm. that we can then support as an entire community. You yeah. know? Um, do you think, do you think part of the, the problem in that, that power struggle um, is due to the underfunding of the arts and how yes. small the communities are? I think that's part of it. I also think there's this, you know, this, this fear of scarcity Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think there's a big fear of, well, if I, if I, I, I like, I have to hang on to my, my grants and my funds and my stuff, because if I don't, my, my theater will collapse mm-hmm. and then I won't be able to do what I love. But if you, and it's not, and it's not a reallocation, you know, we're all in the middle of this pandemic. We're all yep. in the middle of this time where a lot of theaters are suffering and to all my artists, brothers and sisters and humans in between, you know, we, we are all hurting as artists mm-hmm. and we're all trying to create material and stuff online. Shout out to your birthday uh, show next week. Birthday show next week. Although I think this will be up after that, but birthday show next week. <laughs> Find it on YouTube. Anyway. Um, It'll so be on YouTube for a few weeks as long as they don't maybe, take it down. Right. But <laughs> maybe instead of applying for every grant, maybe you don't. Mm-hmm. Maybe you will, you create a space where more can happen because there is such a huge underfunding of the arts right now, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I wish we could go back to the days of the Federal Theater, theater Project to some degree, not, <sighs> not in its entirety. Yeah. Not, I don't love I it I just want to see Happy Beavers. <laughs> of, course you, of course you fucking do. Um, Look up the cradle like, of rock. Yeah, but the... But the but the federal theater project was a time when the government actually supported theaters mm. financially with opportunities and spaces. And, you know, that harkens back to the Greek times where theater was a mandatory cultural event. Yeah. You could not be an active citizen without going to the theater. Yep. Um, and now we're just f- going further and further away from that. That's, and, you know, that's, that's a, that's an, uh, symptom or a logical progression of the type of government that we have yes. that purposely was created to keep people from thinking, to keep people from questioning, yep. to create an industrial... To label it a democracy when it's actually a republic. <laughs> yeah, and to to 
create an industrial government that mm-hmm. is able to make money, use its citizens, and move forward. Fascism. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I think we all heard that and threw up a little bit. <laughs> um, instead of true democracy, which is what ancient Greece was, or as close to it as they could get, because mm-hmm. there was still a fair amount of oligarchy in ancient Greece. But um, a democracy where people were considered people and there was an emphasis on philosophy and there was an emphasis on asking questions and there was an emphasis on learning, Mm -hmm. which is why Aristotle created the whole, um, his idea of government was the philosophers are in charge of everything and the artists are right below them. And then everyone else is below them because you have to problematic, but (laughs) I mean, but I understand his point in that he wanted to make sure that the people there, Philosophy is hard to mass disseminate. Yep. You can't just go up to someone and say, even on this podcast, people are probably like, oh, okay, you said Aristotle, I'm out. Uh, yeah. Here's Maslow's <laughs> hierarchy. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's talk about some Cartesian theorems. Um, but then, or similarly to Darwinism. When Darwinism yep. came out, no one was reading The Origin of Species except for artists. Mm-hmm. And artists then were like, oh, well, if he wrote this, let's start putting it into our art, into literature, into visual art, into theater. And all of a sudden, that's what mass disseminates it into the people. And so when yep. Aristotle said he wanted the philosophers at the top and the artists next, it was because he realized that if you just right. had philosophers and then people nothing would ever get done because there would be no, no one would be able to understand what was being said, which Which is why it's problematic that capitalism has now taken the lead followed with consumerism. Mm -hmm. And so we have this like incestuous circle. And meanwhile, the artists are over here being like, Hey girl, Hey, (laughs) (laughs) we're just trying to tell people the truth. (laughs) And so, you know, like that's been a big question of this time in quarantine for me. You know, I've been, I'm in my master's program. I'm mm-hmm. supposed to be launching at the end of this year, and I don't even know if my thesis is going to happen. Yeah, um, I already lost one, like three projects, three projects. Yeah, I lost three projects. Supposed to graduate, and I and I'm sitting here being like, I don't. How am I supposed to launch? What's next? You know, I was yeah back in April. I was having some major crises because I was like, what am I going to do? I don't know what's next. So how can I know what's next and launch into it? How can I take that leap into something I don't know? Yeah. And that's when I, when I asked that question, I realized I was asking the wrong question. Instead of asking what's next, I've been really challenging myself to ask, what do I want to see in what's next? Mm-hmm. What, what needs to be next? And how can I be a contributor to what's next? Yeah. How can I be someone who builds opportunities and spaces for artists from all walks of life? to amplify and illuminate the voices and narratives of the unheard. Yeah. Um, how can I be a part of that rather than waiting for it to happen? Yeah. Completely. And so that's been, that's been great. You know, I'm very thankful for this program that has taught me so much about directing. I've not only become an excellent director, I'm starting to become an excellent artist, just like the fabulous Vivian Gabor, um, <laughs> where we are, we are, we are not sitting back and waiting. We are not being lazy with our creation. We are being advocates and catalysts for a future we hope to see. Yeah. And that's where the change comes from. That's where we can say Black Lives Matter and follow it up with 
and this is how we're going to make sure it continues to matter. Yeah. And LGBTQ love is love. Human rights are equal rights are human rights. Mm-hmm. And this is how we're going to make sure that happens. Yeah, yeah. And I think something something that's always been a driving factor for me, um, and a lot of people laugh at it. My dad is pained by it. Um, but it's the fact that I don't care what I do. I don't care how much money I'm making. I just have to be passionate about it. Yep. And so it's that's a great why... meme that's like stress. What is it? Exhaustion doing something you don't love is stress. Exhaustion doing something you love is passion or something like that. Yes. Which... I love that. It's very true. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's, it's always it's it's why when the pandemic happened and all of a sudden drag shows went online i was like i don't care that i'm not getting paid for things i'm doing this because i wanted to do it mm-hmm. and i've always wanted to do it like this is yeah. the ultimate expression of my art so at this point sure i'm not getting paid for it but i was never planning on getting paid for it which is not <laughs> the point right exactly like and- why does money and getting paid have to be the mark of success or yeah or anything like why does success have to be measured when it can be felt Mm -hmm. your success is in is in executing a project or answering a question with your art yeah completely and let me run an idea past you that i literally just had in the last five minutes great run it that i think is going to shift the way i think about online theater and online shows and things like that Mm -hmm. so Back in the 16th, 17th, I think even the 18th century. No, that's too, 16th and 17th centuries. Are you going had, melodrama, commedia? Where are we going? Commedia. Okay, great. So we had commedia, which was troops of, of improvers. actors, improvers, yep. who would go city to city. They would with talk to, with a cart. <laughs> they would talk to the people living in that city, figure out what political unrest there was, what social issues there were, and then they would do a show on about it. Mm-hmm. And that was really where the theater, modern theater came from, was comedia. I would wager to say that we are in the second heyday of comedia. Sure. In that now we don't even have to travel. Now we can literally do shows online about what's going on in our culture, about what's going on politically, all of these Mm -hmm. kinds of things in this little box that everyone has Mm -hmm. in their home and we can make it really specific and really topical. Yes. And it's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. Which... Yeah, I mean, I would even argue we're in the third iteration of that because, you know, with the rise of improvisation, Mm. um, that eventually led to the formation of the Upright Citizens Brigade, Second City, you know, Mm -hmm. those actors don't start out getting paid. They start out by contributing Mm -hmm. to the the company that they're a part of to create these improvised sketch comedy things that do specifically address cultural phenomenon and societal questions um, and poke holes, which then gave rise to SNL. Yeah, you know. truly. So, I mean, yeah, I think in a way we are in the third iteration of that. I think, I think we're also in in the 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 pinnacle of how do you cre- what it does take to create art. Mm-hmm. What is art with a capital A? <laughs> and how do we all? How can we? Be, whether you have trained for thirty years or ten years or four months, 
what it, what are you doing with your art and why? Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're also in a place where, where art and theater and music and all of these things have become more democratic than they have been in a very long time. Yes. To the point where like Sondheim, Sondheim's birthday show was, was amazing. It was incredible. And it was done online. I yep. would never have been able to afford a ticket to that show. Yeah. They have done never. multiple birthday shows for him in the past, almost yearly, truly. Because he's well, that's important. how birthdays usually work. I, I just <laughs> he's on a birthday every year, but I don't think they've done a show actually every year. But very, he, they've done lots of shows for him, and tickets for those shows are always in the thousands. Well, yeah, I mean, look at Hamilton. Like Hamilton was like eight hundred, <laughs> nine hundred thousand dollars, and yes, I don't. I mean, Could I love you all the hear show. my eye roll. <laughs> yeah, well, and they I may or may not my... be planning a YouTube video talking through Hamilton and all of its issues. <laughs> yeah. Hamilton is a problematic show. However, it did take a huge step forward for a BIPOC artist-led production. Yes, true. Um, and, you know, why we don't... We, there's a lot of critiques of Hamilton that similar shows that have similar critiques aren't made because they're led by white young casts. Mm-hmm. Do you have an answer? Um, <laughs> um, 1776. Civil War. Right. There are some, but we we critique them. Like, I've noticed a lot of people critique Hamilton more when it's like, no one is expecting Hamilton to be perfect. No. No no show should ever be perfect. There's problems with every show you look at. I think the biggest issue with Hamilton was how expensive it made theater. And that's what I, that's what I mean. That's what I was about to say is that Hamilton made theater into a thousand dollar event for one Mm -hmm. ticket. It's and crazy then it's stupid it's so stupid and so little of that money ended up going to the artists who made it yeah and um and so when the pandemic hit and you know disney plus streamed it which is you know mm-hmm. is a is a step in a way to a solution because then yeah. suddenly everyone who had a disney plus account or friend who did who obviously <laughs> will know their login info because we never keep that shit private Um, truly (laughs) but like suddenly everyone had access to this cultural phenomenon led Mm -hmm. by BIPOC artists yep and we were able to celebrate it and coming next is I think once on this island the roundabout production is going to be on they're putting that on Disney plus yes that's coming next which is for me one of the most transformative pieces of theater that I've ever seen good Um, well and on top of that Broadway HD has been putting tons and tons of shows online um, and it's it's taking the the elevated Broadway mm, and making it accessible to yeah. people who can't get there. Yeah, and it's not perfect yet, but it also I think takes the um, the perfectionism of Broadway and makes it more common in the sense yeah. of like we look at theaters now in like Seattle or Denver mm. or San Francisco or Chicago, and we're like, well, they're all creating just as quality art as. Yeah. Broadway. Yeah. So why aren't we investing more in those? Yeah. Truly. So I, though, yes, Hamilton is. I also. Th- I do think that that. I love. I love the show for what it created. The opportunities yes. to celebrate BIPOC narratives. That's completely um, fair. An artist tree. Yeah, and I will never argue that fact. My issue is all with the politics of the show. <laughs> Which yes, problematic. <laughs> um, but all shows have a point of view with a political bent. 
know. Yeah. Well, and I also, I think that truly was part of why protests and things like that suddenly became so accessible and suddenly became so much more than they have been because we got a taste of that democracy. We got a taste of that ability to be just as equal as everyone else. Yes. And And we we realized how important it is to be equal. Yes. And we got, um, we got the world to pause long enough. Like as much as Mm -hmm. this pandemic fucking sucks. It also created a pause that we have that and Bogart says we have to invest in the pause. Um, yes. And I, I just I, I watched her in a conference about One of the during best this theater things ever. Yes. Um, and she said invest in the pause. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is the pandemic created such a disruption that finally we were able to look around and make a change. Yep. Or and begin we, the change. Everyone was just like, wait, what's happening? Yeah. Like I I kind of knew this was going on, but wait, what? <laughs> the hustle was interrupted long enough for us all to be like, hold up. Mm-hmm. Hold, wait. <laughs> I think it also created space for people to actually self-care instead yes. of the whole like health industry idea of self, self-care where it's like, oh, and now we're going to go to a spa and spend hundreds of dollars for a day of like, pampering that's not self-care like we we learned oh i'm so depressed that i only get out of bed to go to the bathroom anymore Mm -hmm. how do i care for myself enough to get out of bed in the morning like very very basic things that we're all learning and i honestly truly think we're going to come out on the other side of this pandemic a stronger society, not saying we're going to have fixed everything during the pandemic, because that's not going to happen. It's going to take decades, hundreds of years to fix everything that's been set up. But we're going to come out on the other side, understanding that we can fix things. I think there's going to be a lot more hope. There's going to be a lot Mm -hmm. more strength. Mm -hmm. And that's exciting to me. Yeah. I mean, I've heard so many theater artists say, you know, like this pause made me realize that I've been working 18 hour days seven days a week for theater and I didn't have anything else I didn't have a support system I didn't have the friends I didn't have uh I didn't have ways to self-care or to self-create I didn't have the tools or the understanding of my own artistry anymore I was such I was so caught up in the hustle that I'd forgotten what made me an artist in the first place yeah um and so I've noticed I know many friends who have said part of their post pandemic hope is that they're going to take some of the lessons they've been learning in quarantine to be like, you know, maybe I don't have to work 12 hour days. Maybe I can actually, maybe I can create the art I want to make Mm -hmm. in the time and do the best work that I can with the time that I have that still maintains healthy boundaries in my personal and professional life. And that's okay. I can tell you on a very personal level, I had to learn that lesson because I've always been the kind of person that when I get a commission for an outfit, I, there's something in my brain that's just like, you have to make it all in one day. Now. You have to do the yep. entire thing in one day so it's out of the way. And what that would do was it would create stress and then I would procrastinate and procrastinate mm-hmm. and procrastinate because I was just like, I don't want to spend 20 hours in a single day working on this thing because yep. that's going to kill me. Yeah. And what I had to learn during this whole pandemic was literally I can cut something out and then leave it. 
I can work on something for an hour, set it down, mm-hmm. go have some lunch. Mm-hmm. And then I can yeah. pick up another project, work on it for an hour, and, and then read a book. There. And it'll still be there and it'll still get done and it'll actually get done faster mm-hmm. because I'm allowing myself to not be stressed. Yeah. Twyla Tharp talks about, I'm reading her book, The Creative Habit. And she, she talks about how can you create space in the, in the rituals to be creative mm-hmm. and that it's not just working. It's not being a martyr for your work. It's about, it's about, uh, finding the things that inspire you, taking mm-hmm. a step back long enough to be able to attack it again with new eyes, um, to to be relentless in your pursuit of who you are as an artist first, yeah. rather than the product of your artistry. Yeah, fully. And I that's something I remember. One of the reasons I wanted to go into costuming was because I watched the appendices of the Lord of the Rings when I was a young teenager. And realized that Weta Workshop not only made armor, but they engraved the outside of the armor. They engraved the inside of the armor. They Mm -hmm. did extra research they didn't have to do to put extra little things into every detail because Mm -hmm. they just loved doing it. Right. And I'm a very detail-oriented person. And the way I was making stuff was not detailed at all. It was, I'm going to slap this leotard together and send it to someone. Right. So what I've learned that I can do now is I can put bias tape on something and take 20 minutes to do a single seam and make Mm -hmm. it look pristinely beautiful and something that no one's ever going to see except me but when that thing gets a, there's a photograph of it or when it's on stage, You're gonna know. I will know that underneath there's not a thing poking the performer, that the performer is comfortable and they feel special and beautiful because even on the inside, that outfit is gorgeous. Yes. because And then that effort, that time, that, that, that love you put into that garment generates more work eventually, right? Mm-hmm. Because you've taken the time and that person's going to tell that person. And yes, Lord of the Rings had an abundance of time and money. Yes. But that doesn't mean that you're But your look time at what, what a workshop is doing now. Class. Right. What a workshop was literally created by Peter Jackson for one of his tiny little movies. And then Lord of the Rings came along and he's like, well, I guess you guys got to do this because I don't have anyone else to do it. Mm-hmm. And because of the time and attention that they put into every single thing they did, they now are the biggest special effects and costuming companies in the world. Which is why the time and energy and, and, and resources you have right now, mm-hmm. you know, that is what you have right now. And you do the best work you can with what you've got right now. And that will be get more yep. when, you put the, when, you, when you put the energy in correctly, right? Which is funny because you're not even putting it into things to benefit other people. When you look at it that way, you're literally doing it just for yourself. Exactly. You're Your artistry putting that becomes time. You. That's true self-care. And it, and it separates you from the work, right? You are yeah. not your work. However, your work um, informs yeah. and, and deepens your own understanding of your artistry. Which is why when you watch things like there was a, I remember watching a, behind the scenes documentary that they did of Meryl Streep doing Mother Courage. 
Mm-hmm. And it's so cool. It's so cool. But the, she had never let anyone see her quote unquote process before in acting. Mm-hmm. And it's because she isn't doing things that will benefit the performance in her yep. process. Yep. She does things that will benefit her. Mm-hmm. And that in turn benefits the performance. It's the same thing with singing. When I was in school for learning how to be an opera singer, definitely did me a lot of good. But the thing that you, (laughs) (laughs) the thing that you learn is you can't consider the sound coming out of your mouth. Right. That's never, no opera singer, except maybe Renee Fleming, but no opera singer is standing on that stage. I love Renee. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I adore her. Yeah. Not the best opera singer, but she's incredible. And she's one of the best singers. She lives her best life. It's fine. And it's hard to explain. Anyway, <laughs> we just, everyone loves being shady about her in the music world. For sure. But, um, kind of like how everyone in the theater world loves being a little bit shady about Adina Menzel, even though we all work, we all love her and worship oh, yeah, her. We're all fully. like, bish, we see you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we love you. But and, no you know. <laughs> opera singer is standing on that stage singing Un Bel D or singing Musetta's Waltz or whatever, mm-hmm. thinking about the sound that the audience is hearing. No. All they're thinking while it's happening is, oh, that vowel was a little too closed. Oh, I need to change my resonance a little bit because it feels like it's in the back of my head and it needs to be in the mask and my breath I, isn't supported right my now. breast isn't supporting my breast my breath isn't supported no. right now my also feet that. are in the wrong position like it, you can never think about the finished product you have to think about everything you're doing and making those individual steps the best they can be and the finished product will come and the finished product will be the the result of multiple experiments. Yep. It's the same thing with political movements. The Black Lives Matter movement may seem like it's dying out on social media. It's just because the media is getting bored of it. It's not because it's actually dying out. No. And it's these and- little steps that have been incurring for years and years and years and years that have gotten us to this point. And it's going to be years and years and years and years of more little steps that eventually will turn into the finished product. Which is why people love to point out, like, well, what about the looters? And it's like, this is not about them. Mm-mm. Like, if you're more concerned about the property damage and the looting, you have bigger issues than I can address. Well, and if you're worried about like, property like, damage and looting, you were not in Seattle during the WTO riots. <laughs> exactly. Um, but and that's what I mean. It, what you're saying about this whole, the Black Lives Matter movement is is a movement that is growing, and it's a movement that is that is gaining deeper and more solidified understanding of the systemic problems in our culture um, and creating the space to question them and creating the 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 space for voices and yes we're angry people who are in the like we're marching for a reason we are taking action for a reason we are angry and it's okay to be angry because once again you can be emotional and be rational yeah well it's the idea of you can't plant a seed and expect a tree the next day no that's kind of the the whole takeaway from this whole (laughs) episode is i mean coming from coming out to your family and expecting them to be okay with it right away and political movements and art and everything you cannot plant a seed and expect the tree to be fully grown the next day that the only time that has ever worked was for jack of the beanstalk 
Right. And you can't plant <laughs> a seed and see the tree sapling and say, see, that's enough. Mm. Right. Especially that's because trees never stop growing. Yes. I mean, you talk about just, we're just going to push, push this metaphor as far as we can take it. You talk about the redwood forests uh, in California. They're still growing and they're the tallest trees on the planet. Yeah. And they are still growing. And it, yes. And that's where, you know, I've had people point out like, well, we've come a long way since uh, Stonewall. We've had, we've come a long way since the civil rights movement. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yes, but we don't tell that staff, that sapling to just stop growing. Yeah. We don't just say stop. Yeah. The, the sapling is still being overshadowed by all these other big trees. So how can we create space for it to grow? How can we create it where this, this matters? Yeah. And it's where, that's where cancel culture is really ruined a whole lot of things because you can't, you can't expect that growth to occur if you're constantly you hold them burning the tree. Yeah. You have to, I'm a, I'm about an accountable culture. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, JK Rowling, fuck you for saying what you did about trans folk, you know, mm-hmm. not okay. You've and made some amazing books. Digging in her heels. But at the same time, you have to remember that those books are the reason why we are questioning her now. Right. Truly. I mean, it sounds reductive, but our generation grew up with those books literally being the conscience in the back of our head. Yeah. Like, we wouldn't be fighting for a and lot of the things if there wasn't, be... like, 20 chapters in... Uh, uh, um, Goblet of Fire of Hermione being angry about, about house elves. The, yeah, the house, <laughs> like, the house elf revolution. We want that artist. We want that storyteller who gave us yeah. it in a afterthought kind of way, but still gave us like a queer main character mm-hmm. who gave us the house elf resolu- revolution. Who yeah. gave us these characters that are that feel deeply hurt immensely and still fight for good. Yeah. Um, but if you cut want... someone out and you shun them, you're never going to get that person. Right. I'm sorry. I, I do. And she, yeah, fully... She's digging in her heels and I hope right someday now, she'll come. Yeah. And I hope she'll learn because she is still growing. She is yeah. still a treat. You know, it's and... like when people hold politicians or YouTubers weird that I'm putting them in the same sentence. To I mean, things they're that not they... far from each other. <laughs> it's now. true. Things to things that they said 10 years ago. Yeah. Like recently they released an article about Randy Rainbow. I saw that. Um, And it's just like, Randy Rainbow is amazing. And he's creating political satire. It was 10 years ago. Yes, He said some, he's a satirist. He said some hateful things in early 2000s. But I'm like, if you're going to cancel every person who said anything remotely racist, homophobic, transphobic, or bigoted remotely. Literally everyone is out of the picture. Everyone. Some like, of us I were mean, just. I've, I'll be honest. Put I've, those things I've online. Things. But I'll I've, be honest. I, are you kidding? Do you remember? I mean, you probably don't remember this, but I was super fucking homophobic for decades. Yeah. I mean, if we're talking ten years ago, we were both juniors in college. Like I said some shit. Yeah. I was not about the the gay club open conversations whatever it was on campus like i thought they were full of shit yeah and, and so, now look at so me. <laughs> we we grow and i think yep. yeah i mean like sure our episode's gonna be called what 
the tree always grows or something like that. Um, <laughs> a tree grows in Brooklyn. Ah! Yeah, done. <laughs> uh, but the but we're constantly growing. And that's yeah. why cancel culture, you don't just chop down, you don't end someone when they fuck up. You yep. redirect, you ask questions, you hold them accountable because you know, like I, I, there's a part of me that believes, that has to believe JK Rowling has a good heart. There's a part of me that has to believe there are people who have Absolutely. good hearts out there who have said some fucked up shit. Truly, and that if we don't no cancel them, mm-hmm. we can give them the platform to be accountable and to yeah. make better changes and to then continue the journey with us instead of away from us. Yeah. There's no such thing as a truly evil or truly good person. This right. is not classical literature with heroes and villains. This is not melodrama. People are people. And but wouldn't that be God crazy? help me for saying this. The universe help me for saying this. But truly I believe Trump isn't a completely terrible person. Like there I He's close. He's close. Oh, and man. I'm not, I am not endorsing him. But Oof. I'm, what I'm saying is we have to acknowledge that every human on this planet is human and, mm-hmm. and capable. And capable. And there is, there is a difference between innocent ignorance, which is what Dolly Parton was talking about, and purposeful ignorance, which I think yep. is what we Willful, see in our government. Yeah. Willful ignorance. But that aside, it doesn't mean that a human being is fully evil, even though they are contributing to a huge amount of evil. Sure. It doesn't mean Which that is so they hard. themselves and are that. And it's very hard. And that's <laughs> the empathy part that is so hard to live yeah. with, is to acknowledge that the people you most disagree with, the people that you really hate, are human too. And yeah. that's and that's real difficult. That is, Which is that is hard which is um, why we have a court system that uh, that starts with in, uh innocent until proven guilty i was having a conversation on twitter with someone about that where they hated that someone that was doing something super racist and create and doing a hate crime on video was still spoken about on the news as having allegedly done it and i was like no there's a reason for that it's because we have to assume that everyone is innocent until proven guilty because if you don't you have italy (laughs) you have italy's court system where people get stuck in prison for things they didn't do and you also have to understand that that one hate crime is part of an entire person's growing up it's an it's part of their psyche they don't know things other than that yeah yeah and it's hard it's super hard it's very hard um yeah, I mean, I'm still sitting uncomfortable with like Trump is not an evil person. I'm like, <laughs> like I, I really, it's easy. I, and the thing is, but that's where that's where I think we as as liberals and people who are all about change and seeing change in our culture are different because we can acknowledge the other side is not evil. Yeah. they're problematic. They are they are evil in action, not in not in their like. I don't, not in I mean, nature I th- not in nature thank you like yeah. i think trump is evil at his core but he is also <laughs> but he's um, also human he is human and he, but we can acknowledge that and it's the other side that actually often puts us in the far gone yeah. they are evil well, and i mean to be fair the right and the left both this isn't going to go down an entire rabbit hole but the right and the left are both guilty of that 
totally. pigeon, pigeonholing into a, villain I will versus fully hero. Acknowledge, I will fully acknowledge uh, that I'm guilty of that. Uh, me too. That's where, like, sure. And it's so Do, hard. Am I, am I happy that I have to vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? No. Fuck no. Not at all. Yeah. Do I think that they're evil people? No. No. Do I agree with most of what they say? No. No. Do I think that they are more reasonable than the other person that we have to vote for? Yeah, probably. Do I think that they will create the journey back? Yes. Yes. I mean, and... it's just like um, uh, uh, Justice Gorsuch. When he mm-hmm. was first appointed, I was just like, well, great. We Everything's over. Yeah, then he surprised us all. And then he surprised us all by being a level-headed, rational human being. And it's like, see, this is why you can't pigeonhole people. (laughs) Yeah. So, and when you stop to think about it, and I know we all post things on Instagram and Facebook and every other social media that are very inflammatory and very um, uh, 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 didactic. It's Mm -hmm. this or that. I think when we stop and we actually look around as, and we look around at all the people doing their own thing, we're like, man, we're all on different journeys right now. Mm-hmm. And that's where we have to start from. And that's yeah. how conversations begin, right? If you attack yeah. someone with, you're evil, you're not going to be hurt. <laughs> yeah, well, fully. And that's why I had to learn, yes, I can say fuck the police. But when I say that, I have to then also quantify it by saying, I don't hate the people. I hate the institution that created a space for people to be turned into that. Yeah, we have to, when we say defund the police and fuck the police, it's not that police are evil. It is that they are within a system that has perpetuated hate and racial bias. And and, requires them to be And requires them to make assumptions and with with protected immunity and all this stuff that the system mm-hmm. itself is broken and that they are contributing right now they are contributors to that system yes and that when we defund and revamp and reimagine and recreate whatever our community system of safety is going to be that 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 um uplifts communities rather than holds them below mm-hmm. authority it's, maybe it's we'll the, rename them police, but maybe there'll be something else. Maybe they'll just be community advocates. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's the idea of believing that a person's actions communicates their core self. Mm-hmm. When in reality, our actions are a combination of genetics. So many factors. And so many factors. Genetics, time, um, society, place, society pressure, culture. all sorts of things. And truly brainwashing occurs as well (laughs) oh god me on zero night sleep not good like you can always tell (laughs) if you go back and listen to my podcast you can tell which ones i was tired during (laughs) not this one (laughs) not this one this one i had a whole ton of ice earl gray tea sure (laughs) (laughs) but Anyway, I think that's a good place to kind of wrap it up. Just talking, just leaving people with growth never stops. Mm -hmm. Cutting off the growth is unnecessary and unhelpful. Mm -hmm. And that empathy is a conscious choice to remember and live. Conscious daily choice, both for yourself and the people around you. 
unlearn your biases, unlearn your um, your 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 point of view, acknowledge your privilege, and remember that empathy is a daily commitment to seeing another human as human. Yeah. And don't just call yourself an empath because you happen to be a kind, caring person. <laughs> Different things. <laughs> That's my favorite favorite thing right now well i i'm a caring person so i'm an empath no No, you're human (laughs) no you are empathetic an empath is when you walk into a room and you immediately get depressed because someone is sad that's me (laughs) that's me (laughs) it's the worst anyway uh next time on yeah but andrew and vivian (laughs) talk about empath (laughs) or we just start an entire podcast of our own love it (laughs) um where can people find you online? Totally. Uh, so I just launched my professional website. Woohoo! Yay! So uh, check me out at andrewkoopman.com. You can also find me on Instagram at arkoopman. Um, and uh, yeah, come follow me. It'll be fun. And you can always find us on Instagram at yeahbutpod. Um, you can also find us on Twitter now at yeahbutpod. Um, website forthcoming probably in a very long time um (laughs) but coming up soon on the gaborium network we also have a new show that is premiering on september 12th called uh y2 gay podcast or y2 gay reruns i can't even remember the name of my own new podcast y2 gay reruns where we go back and watch cult classic 90s television shows um, that I missed the first time around. And the first season is Twin Peaks. Mm. I now have to go watch a bunch of episodes of so I can record an episode of the podcast. What but, else would be in that time era? I want to be on that episode, on that podcast. Um, well, we can talk about that later we'll because talk about I don't want to put that on yep. the podcast. But anyway, totally. check that out. Uh, that's also on Instagram at Y2GayReruns_Pod. Um, and premiering everywhere on September 12th. So be on the lookout. Um, Thank you, Andrew, for doing this. Thank you, Miss Gabor. (laughs) And we will see you all later. Bye. Bye. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Thank you for listening to Yeah, But with Vivian Gabor. Tune in next week. Same place, same time. Yeah.